Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together to learn more about you and your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we look into your scriptures, that you'd give us wisdom to understand what you've said to us. And uh, Lord, we pray also for those who are suffering. We pray that these words would be an encouragement to them, that one day you will deliver us to the promised land. One day this final exodus will come. Help us to think well now in the biblical text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, dear ones, last time we were together in the book of Revelation, we were in chapter 15. We left off halfway through our slides. And I want you to remember that in Revelation chapter 15, we're looking at the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And what we learned was that just as the first exodus was a deliverance of the people of God from the enemies of God to the promised land, that's ultimately what the 70th week of Daniel is about. It's about delivering the people of God from the enemies of God and bringing them to the ultimate promised land. And so this really is the final exodus. And I want you to remember, we had this passage up, Revelation 15, 2 through 3, where John said, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, I had made comments on this idea of standing on the sea of glass, and we saw the connection back to Ezekiel 1. Remember the prophet Ezekiel saw very similar imagery, and back then God's judgment was pending upon the people of Judah for their idolatry, Think about Exodus, or excuse me, Revelation 15. Now God's wrath is pending, not upon Judah, but upon the entire world. Okay, now, we also compared the Song of Moses to the Song of the Lamb, and we looked at the tremendous similarities between them. Now, the other thing we talked about is how God's redemptive acts are synonymous with his name, and it gives him great glory. But then we left off with this. Notice in the box it said that he was going to be called king of the nations. And I said this is really a political statement. This is the idea that his rule, that is God's rule, will in fact be over all of the earth. And that's one of the great promises as we're going to read later is that one day Messiah, the God-man, is going to rule righteously over the entire world. So if you've longed for a day where you see righteous politicians rather than evil ones, well, you're not going to see him this side of glory, but one day it will happen. And we talked about the fact that this righteous rule is not going to come about by human effort. It's not going to come about by you and I Christianizing the planet. In fact, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the planet? So think about that. How many Christians over the years have been post-millennialists? What does a post-millennialist believe? Well, they believe that you and I as Christians are going to be so successful that we're going to Christianize the entire planet, and then Jesus returns. Now, from our reading thus far in the book of Revelation, does that sound plausible? In fact, Jesus said if, no, if that time period had not been cut short, no flesh would have even survived. But for the sake of the elect, this time period will be cut short. We also have to realize that this kingdom is not going to come about through our political action. It's not going to come about through the Christian reconstruction movement that Bob wrote about in his CIC article where they believe that we're going to bring the dominion mandate over the entire world. 
So how does the kingdom come? It comes through God's supernatural intervention. It's by his grace alone. And I want you to think about how God brings this rule in two advents. The first advent of Christ brings justification, salvation for his people from their sins. But the second one is going to bring glorification, salvation from their enemies. And a passage that I'm preparing for the next time we're in Romans, remember we're going to get into Romans 8, 29 through 30. Remember in Romans 8, 30, Paul says, For those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's four terms in there, predestined, called, justified, glorified. If you think about the predestination and the calling, that happened in eternity past. We don't know when. That was before the world was. But when you look at justification and glorification, in a real sense, those happen at the two different advents. The first advent, Christ comes to bring justification. The second advent, he's going to come to bring glorification. And when he's glorified, the great promises will be glorified with him. We learned that last time, last week in Romans. And so this great political kingdom will come, and you and I are going to be reading about some fabulous passages where the king of kings will be reigning over the world. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, uh, I know this is just your introductory comment. This is just a little bit of humor. Um, If you guys and anyone listening, if you go and Google Unite Cloud, that's an organization up in St. Cloud, and they're dedicated towards, you know, uniting St. Cloud and bringing in Muslim people. And, And there's a bunch of people who call themselves Christians who are involved in this. And if you look at their first quote, they've got a quote right on there. Yeah. And it's a quote by Jimi Hendrix. Oh. Okay. That great and, theologian. And I, uh, that famous, right. famous theologian who lived a good life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in other words, we need to understand what the book of Revelation says because yeah. if you go to that website, Unite Cloud, you will see that there's a lot of Christian people, people who think of themselves as Christians, who will believe something that Jimi Hendrix said. It's about how love will conquer everything, and, and then we'll have a, a really everything will be good. And, right. And it's just so, so wrong. Yeah, well and so said. we need to understand the book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Good point, Eric. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, the only thing I want to caution there is we don't know the motivations of people's hearts. We're not to judge them. No, we can judge their actions and stuff, but we need to be concerned with, you know, jumping to conclusions. They may be, you know, they they could be wrong, you know, no doubt about it. I mean, we can't unite with radical Islam, obviously, right, right? if uh, uh, um, if that's their where they're coming from, but we, we need to be careful a little bit. Uh, we can judge when their actions don't, uh, when, when they warrant it, you sure. know, but looking at the motivations of people's hearts is, we're called not to do that as well, though. Right, and so, right, Mike, we can judge the actions, and we know syncretism is always something evil, and I know you're affirming that, and that's what's so interesting. In the Old Testament, anytime Israel added pagan gods, Yahweh plus any pagan gods is not Yahweh at all. And we see the same thing today. Look at the Christians are trying to add Islam to Christianity. Well, Christ plus anything isn't the true Christ of the Bible. Remember Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 11 that if he had a different Christ and a different spirit and a different gospel, he feared that they would fall for that. And so the Christ that saves is the Christ who saves unilaterally. So if we add anything to him, that's the worry in Colossians. That's the worry in Ephesians that those in Asia Minor would add something to Christ, whether it's the worship of angels, whether it's some other religion, 
then you don't have the true Christ of the Bible, and then you're back into idolatry. So that's what we can judge. We can judge the actions, we can judge doctrine, but we can't know the motives of the heart. So well said. Now, well, let me get off this slide here. That was verses 2 through 3. So that was the introduction. Now I want to show you a comparison between the book of Revelation and Exodus. And I want you to see how the six bowls that we're going to be coming to, remember the seventh one opens up really to the eternal wrath. The six bowls line up with all of the plagues that God had sent during the first Exodus. So, for example, at the first bowl, we're going to see this when we get to chapter 16 of Revelation. There's malignant sores that come upon the whole world. Well, that's exactly what happened in Exodus chapter 9. God sent malignant sores upon those in Egypt. So there's a connection between Revelation 16:2, the first bowl, and Exodus chapter 9. We see also at the second bowl, the sea was turned to blood. Well, in Exodus 7, we saw the same thing. God turned the Nile, of course, into blood as judgment upon the Egyptians. The third bowl, the rivers were turned to blood. Again, just like what God did in Egypt. We see at the fourth bowl, now this is unique to the book of Revelation. Here the sun scorches men. And this is one of what I call the cosmic judgments. There's four of them throughout the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? And there's actually one at the end. So these four cosmic judgments are unique to the 70th week of Daniel. They're unique to the book of Revelation. But then when you get back to the fifth bowl, you have darkness over the beast's thrones. And of course, that's just like the darkness that God in Exodus 10 had spread out over all of Egypt. So you can see the great similarities. Finally, you get to the sixth bowl, and you have, remember the armies that are going to gather at the Battle of Armageddon? We'll talk about where that is and what that is. Well, all the nations are going to gather their armies. Well, remember in Exodus 14, Pharaoh's armies gathered against God's people then as well. So what's very interesting is God is showing us deliberately through the prophet John a connection between the book of Exodus and the first Exodus of the Israelites and, of course, this final Exodus. Dear ones, the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, what we often call the seven-year tribulation period, it's the final Exodus. It really is. It's the final Exodus in which God will vanquish his enemies and bring his people into the promised land. Now, let me talk a little bit about Daniel's 70th week because I want you to see some concepts. The 70th week of Daniel that we're talking about is synonymous with the parousia of Christ. If you're going to write that in English, it's P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. That's the technical expression that you'll read, for example, in the Olivet Discourse where it talks about the coming of Christ. Jesus says the coming, his coming of the Son of Man will be just like it was in the days of Noah. Or he says he comes like a thief. All of those terms for coming has to do with the parousia. The parousia is synonymous with that seven years. Now, why am I laboring that? Because a lot of people understand the parousia, the coming of Christ, is just a one-day event. Well, let's ask the question, was Jesus' first advent a one-day event? No. There was a plurality of days. Well, the same thing will occur according to Luke 17, 26, when Jesus says, so it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days, plural, of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man is synonymous with the parousia of the Son of Man. So we know it's going to be a plurality of days. And if you look at all the data, it lines up with the last seven years. Now, so we now, now we know the 70th week, the last seven years, is synonymous with the parousia, the coming of Christ. We also know that it's also synonymous with the beginning of the day of the Lord. 
So when you understand that the 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with the coming of Christ and it's synonymous with the day of the Lord, then you can start to see the significance of it. And that's why, indeed, God is saying here in Revelation 15, it's the final exodus. If you want to be delivered from the enemies of God and you want to be brought into the eternal promised land, this is the, the last chance. The, the train is leaving the station. Okay? So that's what we see here in the 70th week of Daniel. And again, what's interesting in these six bowls that you just see on the screen before you, the one that's unique is the fourth bowl. The cosmic judgments are unique to the day of the Lord. And that's why, remember in Joel 2, the sun, moon, and stars would be darkened prior to the great and mighty day of the Lord, right? So these things are all occurring before the battle of Armageddon, these cosmic events. Okay, now with that, let's move on then. We're going to see that the nations will end up worshiping Yahweh. That's going to be the great result of this wrath that God pours upon the world. Revelation 15.4, John continues. He says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Now, stop there. That's what's called a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question demands the answer either yes or no. Well, what do you think the answer will be here? Well, it's not yes or no. It would be everyone, right? Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? The idea is, of course, everyone will. So that expects the answer. Everyone's going to one day glorify him. He says, now here's the reasons. For you alone are holy. For all the nations. Now here's a quote from Psalm 86, 9, also Isaiah 66. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, I want to first of all begin with this concept of fearing. The whole planet, every inhabitant, will one day fear the Lord. And what you and I have to grasp is the idea of fearing. Some people will say it's only reverence. And others will say it's only being terrified. Okay, well, what I think we should say is it's, yes, it's both and. Let me give you an example. When you were a kid, remember your dad? Um, And and some of you, I apologize if you didn't have a dad, but you you gather the idea. A lot of times when we were in trouble as kids, I remember my mom saying, wait till your father comes home. And you'd gulp a little bit, right? And it's not because you hated your father. You had real love for him. You had a reverence for your father. But there's also that little bit of fear, right? As Bill Cosby, and I know Bill Cosby's had some troubles, but he had a funny video once years ago where he said his dad told him, he said, boy, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. (laughs) And that's a little bit of the fear that your father brings, doesn't he? And yet that's the kind of fear and reverence believers have for their heavenly father. But for those who are the enemies of Yahweh, If they won't revere him, they're certainly going to fear him. And they will have to honor him, and they will have to worship him, because he will reign over the entire planet. So no longer will you hear anyone say, well, I don't know if that God you worship is really God. I mean, after all, you know, who can trust the Bible? You won't hear that anymore. Won't that be wonderful, that the name of your God will not be profane? It will not be tolerated anymore when he reigns. Now, I want to talk about all the nations coming together to give fear to Yahweh. And what I said earlier is that the background comes from Psalm 86.9, which is a psalm that David wrote. Now, David, of course, was a prototype of the ultimate king that would come. Remember, David is in the lineage, obviously, Messiah. So just as David was a foreshadowing 
of this king who would reign magnificently from Jerusalem, the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, is going to rule in a much greater way. So when he writes Psalm 86, 9, he talks about all the nations will come and fear Yahweh at the throne in Jerusalem. And then the writer Isaiah picks up on that a few hundred years later. And I want to read a passage in Isaiah that I think is absolutely fascinating that ties into all the nations coming to fear Yahweh in this time period after the wrath comes in the 70th week of Daniel. So please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 19. Again, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 19. Now, as you're doing so, again, Isaiah 59, 15 through 19... Remember, there are three sections in the book of Isaiah. And by the way, there's other people who have different breakdowns. I took this from J.L. Akmatyer. He's a British scholar, and I think he's dead on. He's a great interpreter of the book of Isaiah. He breaks down the book of Isaiah this way, and I found it very compelling. The first section is chapters 1 through 37, where you have the book of the king. And so all that's being accentuated in the first 37 chapters, if you're going to boil it down to one line, is it emphasizes the kingship of the coming Messiah. Well, then when you get to chapters 38 through 54, it's the book of the servant. It focuses on the suffering servant and the redemptive aspect of the coming Messiah. And then when you get to chapters 55 through 66, it focuses on the coming of the anointed conqueror. This Messiah is also going to be a conqueror who reigns over the world. And so realize, as we're reading Isaiah 59, it's in that anointed conqueror section. Now the focus that Isaiah has is to show you this Messiah who is the suffering servant, who atones for sins once and for all, as we see in Isaiah 53, is also the conqueror who's going to rule over the entire world. Now notice what it says here in Isaiah 59:15. There's a complaint. And the complaint is not only the inhabitants primarily of Judah and Israel, but this could be applied to the whole world. The Lord says, yes, truth is lacking. This is actually Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself prey. So notice there, if you actually do righteousness, then you become a victim to those who hate it. That's what it's saying. It says, now Yahweh saw, so he's the God who sees all things, right? And it was displeasing in his sight, this iniquity, and there was no justice. And notice in verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Stop there. So the big complaint is God sees all of this iniquity and there's not a single man, the implication or woman, person on the entire planet that can intercede and remedy the situation. But notice right after this, here comes the remedy. He says, then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Now stop there. Remember I had mentioned, I don't know when I mentioned this. It wasn't that long ago. But remember the arm of Yahweh? We saw him first introduced in Isaiah 40. But when you get to Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant. The arm of Yahweh is personified as being the Messiah who suffers on behalf of the people. So now he's reintroduced again. So yes, there was no one to intercede, but the arm of Yahweh. The arm of Yahweh can do it. That's the Messiah. So then in verse 17, it says, He put on righteousness like a breastplate. Listen to the metaphor, how similar it is to the armor in Ephesians 6. 
He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance, here's the wrath, for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. Now, verse 19, it says, here's the verse, so they will fear the name of Yahweh from west, from, excuse me, from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun that be to the east, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So stop there. Where does the wrath come from? It comes from the arm of Yahweh, the Messiah. And they're going to fear the name of Yahweh, the arm, the arm of Yahweh. They're going to fear and honor the Messiah. Now in verse 20, notice it says, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. So notice there, there's something that people must do if they're going to have a partaking with the Redeemer. That is, they have to turn from their transgression. There's repentance. But the Redeemer, this Messiah, is going to come to Zion. And I believe this is a reference to the second advent. Now, keep, I'll just keep reading. I'll finish it off. And I want to go to Romans and show you a connection it says, and to those who turn from transgression to Jacob, declares Yahweh, and so all Israel... Oh, excuse me, I'm reading Romans eleven twenty six. Let me stop there. <laughs> I blended my verses together. Okay, what's very interesting is, I think Brian had Romans eleven twenty six. All right, so everyone, look at your Isaiah 59, 20. Notice it says, a Redeemer will come to Zion. Notice what Paul does with this passage in Romans eleven twenty six. If you wouldn't mind reading that, Brian. Oh, I'm sorry, you need a microphone. Here we are slacking. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Yeah, did not everyone hear how Paul quotes it? He says the Redeemer will come from Zion. Now, why does he say he'll come from Zion when we have it in the Masoretic text in the Hebrew from Isaiah 59, 20, that he will come to Zion? Well, again, I think the... the, the um, Isaiah 59, 20, when you look at that passage in context, it's clearly referring to the second advent. And that's why it's apropos to our discussion. Because when the wrath of God comes in the form of Messiah coming, then the nations will come and worship God. So in Isaiah 59, 20, it says that he's coming to Zion, to the earthly Zion. But what's interesting is Paul seems to be picking up on the idea that the ultimate Zion is in heaven. The ultimate Zion, see, the, the Zion on earth, the Jerusalem, is just a copy of what we have in the heavenly realm. So it says the writer of Hebrews, uh, we see the idea that Moses was given the copy. We'll read that in the next slide in um, Exodus 25, 40. So what Paul is simply doing is saying that this Messiah is going to be coming from the heavenly Zion. But when we read Isaiah 59, 20, the implication is coming to the earthly Zion. So it's just which Zion are we referring to? But the idea that Paul is driving is that one day all Israel will be saved. And when that happens, when we go back to Isaiah 59, all the nations are going to gather together and they're going to fear the Lord. They're going to worship him. That's what we're reading about in Revelation 15.4. All the nations, after this wrath is poured out, they're going to honor him. And no longer will you as believers have to listen to the world say, oh, why do you believe in that nonsense in the Bible? Yeah, hallelujah. Won't that be a day where our God's name will be honored and given 
the praise that it deserves. Now, let's talk a little bit about this idea of glorifying his name. I know I've talked about this before, but the term glorification or glory comes from the term kavoth in Hebrew, and it literally has to do with the idea of weightiness. So the idea is that the whole world is going to give the weightiness, the, the honor that is due to the great king. No longer will they be tolerated if they scoff at him, mock him, or ridicule him. No longer will that be tolerated anymore. They will give him his, the weightiness that he's due. I like to think about the term weightiness as, think about when a general came in. My grandpa was in the Third Army in World War II. I'm thinking Memorial Weekend. And he drove a tank in Patton's Third Army. Well, when Patton would come into a building, you can imagine there was a weightiness to him. He's the commander of the Third Army. There's even greater weightiness to Eisenhower. He was the commander of all forces. Then there'd be even greater weightiness to Roosevelt. He's the commander-in-chief. But how much greater weightiness should there be given to the creator of all things? And that's the idea that we see here, that one day he's going to get the weightiness, the honor that is due his name. Notice it says, for you alone are holy. That's one of the reasons he's going to be worshipped. It's interesting, this adjective for holy is different than most. Most times you see the adjective for holy is hagios. This is hosios, with an S rather than a G sounding. Now, hosios is rare in what's being emphasized is not so much the purity, the moral purity of God, which is more hagios, but what's being emphasized is his unapproachable majesty. It's almost synonymous with his power. Okay. Now, what's really interesting about that, it's a very rare adjective. It's also used for Jesus in Hebrews 11.26. In fact, I'll just cite that. The writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice where it says holy, hosios. He's unapproachable in his majesty. So Yahweh is depicted here in Revelation, God, as being unapproachable. He's so holy. His majesty is so un amazing. He's unapproachable. Well, Jesus is depicted as the same way. What does that mean? Well, it means Jesus is God. He's always given the same attributes as God. Yes, Eric in the back. Yeah, I just, you know, that's just a great example. Um, we're not Greek scholars. I'm not. You know, you hear the, the term, it's all Greek to me, you know. Yeah. But, but this is where I've the, said that many times to myself. The, this, the, this is where the understanding the Greek and the Hebrew and getting a li little understanding of that, it really adds, it adds to everyone's yeah, understanding. Yeah, amen. That's right. Well said. Yeah, I remember a lot of times I said that to myself during Greek exams. I was all nervous. I said, this is all Greek to me. My professor had wore very thin on him, I think. I, would, I can't read this. This is all Greek to me. But anyway, there was a great story of a pastor. He said um, he marveled at his professor, his Hebrew professor, how he would weep as he'd read his Hebrew. And he thought, how, uh, how godly. And he says, of course, I'd weep when I'd read my Hebrew too, but it was because I couldn't understand it. <laughs> I don't know. I had the book upside down, but yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. So that term is applied. And by the way, this is another, another passage we could use with the Jehovah Witnesses. When they come to your door, the big battle, the only battle you have to win is Jesus is God. And so time and time again, we see the same attributes that are given to God are given to Jesus. Why? Well, because he's God. <laughs> so these are things that you just want to clue in on that you can use. 
Um, in fact, one of the things, I'll just give you a little helpful hint that I've done in my life. This isn't from God or anything. It's just a little advice. I have different Bibles. I don't have them anymore because the one fell apart. But I'd have a Bible dedicated to a cult. So like when a Jehovah Witness came to the door, I'd have a Bible just all ready, loaded for bear for them. They're all marked up, just ready. And so bring that out. And you can do that. Have one marked for Jehovah Witnesses, one for Mormons, anybody that might come to your door. One for the gas company and <laughs> whoever's coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> get a load of Bibles. But that's one way you can just organize yourself and say, hey, I got all the data in that Bible that's lined up for that cult. So a good way to witness. Now, let me uh, put up, by the way, Zechariah 14. What I want to do is pile up the evidence and just to show you how many passages teach about this coming reign of God, Jesus Christ, from Jerusalem and how the nations are going to honor him. Let's just read one from Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17. It says, Then it will come about, this is after the great battle that's going to happen in Revelation 16 to 19. It says, Then it will come about, that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. How intolerant, huh? If you have a different religion, you don't get rain and you don't eat. Right? The rain of God on the earth will be an intolerant one as far as honoring him. It will be mandatory. And this, I think, gives evidence, by the way, the Zechariah 14 passage, that there will be unbelievers that are existing within the millennial kingdom. This is one of the passages that I appeal to. Okay? But let's turn to some others. I had given out some reading material. I want you to see just how all over the place you see the idea that God will reign from Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, and people will come to honor him. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. You know, when, when you go to witness to people and you're trying to convince them to, uh, to repent and believe the gospel and you, you look at verses like this, I mean, there's going to be a point of time where the wrath of God will come on the earth yeah. and it'll be too late for those people. So there's not going to be this, the nations will come and worship before me. You know, they won't be part of that group. Right. Um, but when, when the verse that says, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, does that even include the, the non-believer that's going to hell at that point? I do, I do believe it's all-encompassing. <clears throat> it's, um, it's a gloss as far mm -hmm. as every single knee. It's everyone. Right. But some are going to honor him in salvation, and some are going to be honored by him in being instruments, or not instruments, I should say, subjects of his wrath. Right. right. Um, Ob I, I'm sorry, not subjects, objects of his wrath. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So even here in the Zechariah 14 passage, notice it's going to be compulsory. And the idea is that there are people who live during that reign, and they don't go up willingly because otherwise I think the threat is mute, uh, or moot, I should say. Um, if he's, he's going to have to send no rain upon them because they won't go. So even then, I think during the Millennial Kingdom, you'll have people that do survive, and they'll populate, and they'll be unregenerate. And they will rebel, but they will bow before him. It will be compulsory. But at the end of the day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and he will be glorified in both wrath and in salvation. And we'll look at that in our last slide. We're going to focus on that very issue. But great question, and I think it's both and. Yeah, Brian. At the great white throne judgment, eventually they will confess that exactly. he's Lord of Lords. Yeah, right. Well said. Now, it doesn't specifically state that, but the idea is that he will be glorified in his instruments of wrath or, I'm sorry, not the instrument, the objects of wrath, 
And we'll see that, in fact, we'll read Romans 9 if we get to the end. We're going to read that very thing. So he's going to be glorified in both his salvation and his wrath. Yep. Amen. All right. Oh, so here, let's read some passages. Who had the Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4? Oh, Norm. So, dear ones, this is Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. We're just going to read some passages where we hear about this universal reign of the Messiah. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountains of, mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Wow, thank you. Isn't it interesting that here, when you read that beginning of that passage, it talks about how Zion will be lifted up. It'll be the chief of all the mountains. Now remember, in Isaiah's day, the rival to Mount Zion is Mount Bashan, uh, called the Recesses of the North. Well, that's Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the headquarters of idolatry. Um, It's the headquarters of Baal worship. And what's interesting is when you're in Israel, if there's a clear day, you look to the northwest, you can see the hue. There's kind of a blue hue to the color because it's oftentimes from the mountain of Mount Hermon, it has snow on it. And so it kind of dominates the region. But what's even being promised there is topographically, it's Mount Zion is going to be the most important one. And there all the nations will come. And one day the swords will be beaten to plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they'll learn war no more. And uh, what's very interesting, think about this when you go out into the culture today, what the Bible promises is that by God's gracious intervention, there'll be no more war. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the Marxist movement, they're claiming through their progressive politics, they're going to bring about a a society of no more war, right? The anti-war movement, interestingly enough, is an anti-Christian movement. That's why the peace symbol is a broken cross. So think about uh, John Lennon's song. Do you remember John Lennon, that great theologian, the Beatle? He sang that song, Imagine There's No Heaven, There's No Hell. So he's having you imagine a world that's different than the way it really is. And at the end, I think at the last refrain, he says, and the world will live as one. So what he's saying is it's through human effort and getting rid of all religion and getting rid of God the cause of war, that we're going to have no more war. The the swords will be beaten to plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks by human effort. But what God is saying in his word, it's not through human effort, it's through God's intervention. It's not by works, it's by his grace. So we have to be cognizant of that. Now, we had another passage. Who had Zephaniah 2.11? Yeah, Audrey. Remember Zephaniah 2.11? The main theme throughout it is the day of the Lord. Now listen to how this applies. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Audrey, that's great. Um, Can you read just that part where he says he'll reduce all the gods of the nations again? Um, For he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. Wow, he'll reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. So, Eric, remember you had mentioned how these Christians in St. Cloud wanted to bring in Islam? That won't happen anymore. He's going to reduce to nothing all the other gods and all amen, the other religions. Amen to that. Yeah, amen. Well said. All right, who had Malachi 1.11? I'll give you one more just to show you that's all over the place, this idea of the universal reign. Yeah, there's Tim. Malachi 1.11. From the east, 
For from the east to the west, my name will be great among the nations. Incense and pure offerings will be offered in my name everywhere. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord who rules over all. Wow. So, great. Thank you. So, from the, east to, from, the, from the east to the west, all the nations are going to worship him. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, has that ever happened? It hasn't. So, then how can we claim that eschatology has been fulfilled in some sense in history, as many of the historists try to claim? Well, that's never happened. So, these promises, these are promises of God. These things are yet to be fulfilled, and we see that they will be fulfilled in Daniel's 70th week, after that wrath is poured out, these great promises that we've been reading about in the minor prophets will, will come about. So, excellent. Now, let's keep going then. So, we see that all the nations will worship Yahweh. This is a major theme in the Bible. But then we come to this throne room scene in verses 5 through 6 where John continues. It says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Now, dear ones, notice at the beginning in verse 5 where he has this phrase, after these things I looked. This shows us that a new vision now, which is related to the previous one, is begun. So it's related, but he's getting into a little different glimpse now, and the glimpse is of the temple in heaven. In fact, notice it says it's the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. Now, why is it called the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Well, the testimony, Marturion, comes from the two tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai, according to Exodus 32:15. He brings down the, the tablets with the Ten Commandments on. And so he brings those down, and then they're placed within the tabernacle, right, within the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the tabernacle of God. And so it becomes known as the tabernacle of testimony. You read about that in, like, Numbers chapters 17 and 18. Okay, so let's remember, though, the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple isn't on earth, it's in heaven, all right? So recall that according to Exodus 25, 40, Moses was commanded to make everything out of a pattern that was shown to him. So, in fact, I had someone, did someone, did I give Exodus 25, 40? Yeah, Levon. Listen to Exodus 25, 40. She's going to cite it, and this is given to Moses, and you're going to see that Moses made everything on earth after the pattern. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Yeah, amen. So the, everything that he makes and that he gives directions to others to make is to be after the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews picks up on in, writer, in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, verse 5. He talks about the same idea. That, so the ultimate temple is in heaven, and the shadow then is what we see on earth. Yeah, Brian. So the ultimate tabernacle is in heaven, but could it be like the Ark of the Covenant could, could it be moved for a period of time? You follow what I'm saying? Could, when, when the Ark of the Covenant and, and God was with the Jews, yeah. could that have been a temple of testimony? Or the, uh, what was the phrase used here? The testimony in heaven, the tabernacle of testimony. Yeah, um, here, here's what I would say is, I think you're focusing more on the Ark and the tablets in it. 
But this references to the temple that contained that. Is, do you see what I'm saying? So um, the focus here is on the temple. He's just listing what the temple is. It's the temple that contains the tabernacle of testimony. In other words, it's, it's named the tabernacle of testimony. So temple and tabernacle are synonymous, but it's the testimony that had to do with the Ten Commandments, and he's specifically labeling it that. So what he's showing us is that ultimately the true temple is in heaven. But what's interesting is when we get to, remember the new Jerusalem comes down? Well, then God is going to be with us, right? And we're going to have, we're going to be templing with God, as it were. He'll be in our presence. And in fact, there will be no need for light or a sun because he will be our light. So what a great day that will be, yeah. But for now, the ultimate uh, temple is in fact in heaven. Now, what's interesting is notice here, you see that the angels are coming out. Notice in the box, they came out of the temple. And what that demonstrates is that all the wrath ultimately comes from God's throne. Okay, it comes from him. So no one can claim that, well, this is just man's wrath or the nation's wrath. No, all wrath comes and proceeds from the throne. In fact, remember the structure that we had in Revelation. You had the seventh seal. So remember, you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, then you have seven bulls. That's all the wrath. Well, the first seven seals, at the seventh seal, you have a throne room scene. And what do you have? You have thunder and lightning. Well, then you have the seven trumpets. What do you get at the seventh trumpet? A throne room scene where you have thunder and lightning. Well, now we're coming to the bowl judgments. And when you get to the seventh bowl, lo and behold, you'll have a throne room scene with smoke. Now, what does this remind you of when you have thunder, lightning, and smoke? It should remind us of what accompanied God's presence on Mount Sinai. And so this is another Exodus theme. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 19.16. Exodus 19.16. I just want you to see this motif again, of the Exodus, is all the way through the book of Revelation. Exodus 19.16. Exodus 19.16, it says, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning. Now, by the way, this is the first time you see a reference to lightning in the Old Testament. It's right here. In Exodus 19.16, the term is Barak. Uh, it says it um, flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who are in the camp tremble. So notice the reference to the thunder and lightning. Now, just skip two verses ahead. Exodus 19.18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Now, here's the point. We see seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, thunder and lightning accompanies these judgments, and they all are seen from the throne room of God. Let's take this to learn a little theology. I was dealing with a different eschatological movement called the pre-wrath movement. The pre-wrath movement believes that the seal judgments, it t- up until the sixth seal, is not the wrath of God. It's only the wrath of man. Now, there are several problems with that. Number one, when we see, for example, in the fourth seal, you see the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts that are used. That was God's wrath, according to Ezekiel 14.21. Why would it not be God's wrath in the book of Revelation? Okay? But the other thing is, when you look at this structure, it shows us that all the judgments proceed ultimately from the throne room. Are you with me? So you can't differentiate and say, well, that's just the nation's wrath. 
or that's just wrath that comes about as a blind process of nature. No, all of it is seen as coming from God's throne room. That's a cue. That structure is exceedingly important. Where does all wrath come? It comes from the throne room of God. So, for example, if someone says, well, God wouldn't certainly use the nations as instruments of wrath. Oh, yes, he has and he does and he will. For example, in Isaiah chapter 10, he used Assyria as an instrument of his wrath against his own people, even though Assyria was more wicked. And so he's going to do the same thing according to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, 14, if I recall, it may be verses 14 to 17. But right in there, he says that he has given it to all the nations to give their allegiance to the beast to fulfill his purposes. So all of the nations, when they're pouring wrath upon the other ones, it's his wrath ultimately. So what you have to know is from the first seal all the way through the entire book of Revelation, all the wrath, it comes from the throne room of God. He is ultimately the one who is responsible. Okay, now let's keep rolling here. Wow, we're getting to the eighth slide. I can't believe it. This is a miracle itself. We see the glory of God and his power. It says, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Wow. A great sense of awe and power as this wrath is completed. Now, notice after he leaves the temple... The seven angels are given the wrath of God from this living creature. And again, that accentuates the fact that all the wrath comes ultimately from God. It doesn't originate from any creature. And notice also it says, let me point to it in fact, if I find my cursor. Oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'll pull up my pointer. I have a pointer. I'm not afraid to use I actually am afraid to use it. (laughs) <laughs> I retract that. You see the term bowls there? What's very interesting is the term bowls is somewhat unusual. Every time you see the bowls elsewhere, they're usually filled with incense and praise from the people of God. For example, in Revelation 5.8, they're filled with incense from the saints. But here, notice these bowls are filled with wrath. And the implication is, there. just as um, I think, Dan, you were saying, there's a time that's coming when it's too late. It's too late. Now there's no longer a chance to give incense or prayers to God. The idea, it's too late. Now, because the world won't repent, because the world won't come to faith, now they're just going to get the wrath of God. And I think that that's an indication, even the text here, that there is a time when it's too late. Because remember, after this wrath is done, it's finished. And we see the eternal states come when you get to Revelation 20. So you're exactly right there. All right, let me get rid of my pointer here. There. I did it without shutting my computer off, which is a slight miracle. Now, notice he's described as the one who lives forever and ever. The bowls are full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, that's important because that's opposed. The God who lives forever and ever is opposed to the beast who is finite. All of the idols, whether it be the beast, the false prophet, they're finite. But the God who is opposed to them is the infinite one. And so there's a great contrast in Revelation between that which is created, namely the, the idol of the, the beast, the false prophet, and the creator who can judge all things. In fact, in Hebrews 10.31, it says, it is a fearful thing 
to fall in the hands of the Antichrist? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear he who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's why the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of all wisdom. If you want to have wisdom, according to Proverbs 1, 7, it's the fear of Yahweh. The pre-wrath movement, as I mentioned earlier, they're concerned because you and I are preparing people to meet Jesus rather than Antichrist. And the idea is if you're not prepared to meet Antichrist, then you may perish. But are we to fear Antichrist or are we to fear Christ? Well, what could Antichrist do to you ultimately? Well, he can kill you, but can he send the body and soul in hell? No. What about those in the world that you witness to? What's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Well, somebody could kill you, but they can't send your body and soul in hell, and you'll be raised up, and you're going to reign with God forevermore. You know, my, um, I had a friend who had an electrical shop. He's an electrician. And he had a friend of his that was an old F-4 pilot, and he flew in Vietnam, and things were real serious when you're flying in Vietnam and getting shot at and dropping bombs. And Well, there was an employee that was disgruntled with this fellow. The guy that flew the F-4 was a owner of a business as well. And my friend says, well, what's wrong? And this guy who owned his shop, the F-4 pilot, he says, I don't know, I just fired him. It's not like I killed him or something. You see, when, you're, when you have the mindset of being shot at and shooting at others, it clarifies things. It clarifies what's really serious. And I always laughed about that. I thought, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear who he can destroy the body but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We have to have our priorities right as well. We have to realize that we ultimately answer to Christ alone. And that's the only one we ultimately fear. Now, I say that it's a lot easier to say it than sometimes to live it out. But that's part of our worldview. And that's part of our growth in Christ is where you and I say, no, I'm going to be faithful to Christ no matter what the consequences are. Ultimately, I fear him. Now, I want you to see the relationship here between God's glory and power. Notice what's highlighted in red. It says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. What's interesting is this is probably what's called a um, hendiadis, where you have two ideas that's conveying, two terms that are conveying one idea, and that is the glory and power are really linked together. So the idea is that God is going to be glorified not just in his display of salvation, but he's also glorified at his display of power. And I want you to see that Paul says that very thing in the book of Romans. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 9.17. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 9.17. Ironically, this goes back to the Exodus. Fairly fitting for this Exodus motif here. Romans 9.17, Paul says... For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh ends up being an object of God's wrath, but it was for God's purpose, so that his power and therefore his glory might be displayed. So God is glorified not just in his salvation, but also in his wrath as he pours it out. In fact, let's keep reading. Does somebody have a New King James Version? 
I don't have one with me. Lonnie, could you read, or I'm sorry, uh, whoever's got, yeah, Lonnie, you're close to the microphone. Perfect. Good. Um, Romans 9, 21 through 23. And as he reads, I don't have it. I'm, I'll turn my Bible open here too. I like the New King James Version. I'm convinced from my studies in the Greek that that's the best because of the way it renders a chi, which is and. Let me turn real quick, Lonnie, to my own. I got the ESV here. Okay, yeah, go ahead and read. Okay, uh, verse 21 to 23. You got it. Okay. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Okay, stop right there. Does everyone turn to that? This is Romans 9.21. The question is, does God not have the right to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? Now, that's a rhetorical question. What's the implied expected answer? Of course he has it. Yes, exactly, yes. So he has that right. So he can make some people for destruction and some for salvation. That's what it's saying. In other words, God can do what he wants in his sandbox. He created it. Okay? So keep going. I'm sorry, Lonnie. In verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Beautiful. The, the, what I love about the New King James is notice in verse 23 there's an and and in order to make known the riches of his glory of the, of the vessels of mercy. So there's two purposes that God has. Notice he's going to be glorified in pouring out his wrath upon the vessels of wrath, and he's also going to be glorified by saving people. Okay, so it's, it's not either or, it's both and. In fact, notice where it says in verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Does everyone see the term prepared? The term prepared there, the term is katatismana. It's a participle, and the debate is, is it a middle or is it passive? If it's middle, then the vessels are preparing themselves for destruction. If it's passive, there's an outside agent that is preparing them for destruction. Now, remember, this comes right after Paul has just said, has he not the right to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So in context, who's the implied agent? It's God. So therefore, we know that it should be rendered as a divine passive. These are agents who are prepared for destruction by God. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we get to Romans 9, but here's the idea, is God will be glorified in both the display of his salvation and the display of his power and wrath. And so the big question for the world and for us today is if you and I want to be part of this grand exodus where we leave Egypt, the ultimate Egypt, sin, death, and hell, and we want to be delivered to the ultimate promised land where we live with God forevermore, what should we do now? We have to repent and believe in Christ. Because it's only by applying the blood of the Lamb, just like the first exodus, that we can be passed over from God's wrath. And so once again, we're reminded of the choice that we're going to be either those who are vessels of honor, vessels of salvation, or those who are going to perish. But at the end of the day, God will be glorified by both. Yes, Brian. 
Real quick, we did Romans 9.17, but I just wanted to point out that Romans 9.18 also points out the same thing, which he, he desires uh, uh, who to have mercy on and whose heart to harden. With Jacob and Esau, he gets into that exactly. Yeah. Just real quick, I, I've had this discussion many times with, with uh, family members about, um, so, so my son asked me, Dad, are you saying that God has created beings to send them to hell? So in other words, that's their only, they, they were born for the reason to be sent to hell. And I, I never know quite, I, I, when, it's, when it's worded that way, it's really tough because the invitation is to all. Absolutely. Um, yes, very good question. So let's make a distinction. Um, you're absolutely right. The way I would answer it is yes, but here's the caveat. God really does extend what we call the universal call. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when we're talking about the doctrine of election, let's distinguish between the elect, those that God pours hands on his saving grace upon, and what we call the reprobate. The reprobate are those who are chosen for damnation. The elect are those who are chosen for salvation. God acts differently. With those vessels of election, he's hands-on. He has to regenerate us. He has to bring us to saving faith. With the vessels of wrath, what does he have to do for someone to be a vessel of wrath? He just leaves them alone. He lets them be who they are. So in a sense, when we talk about the vessels prepared for destruction, God is the implied agent, but all he has to do is just let them be who they are because that's the default position. So the point being is at the end of the day, it's their sin that's sending them to hell. There really is a genuine call that all who call upon the name of the Lord, provision has been made, it really is there. And if they will call upon him, they will be saved. In the hardness of heart, as we see in John 6, no one can come to him unless the Father draws. Remember, it's not permission. God has given permission for all to come. In fact, it's a command. The idea is they don't have the ability. And that is their sin issue it's not God. So that's how I usually answer it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, back there. Yeah, Tom. Um, would, you know, you had mentioned a little bit about the Marxists uh, in regards to, are, are they being created then, the Marxists? But at the same time, if you look at uh, the Islam, their goal is to have peace through Sharia law. Yes. Very and good so point. So it's exactly the same mission, if I'm not mistaken, and God creates that, just like with the Assyrians, um, to do that. Is, that. is that correct? Yeah. Well said, Tom. If you boil all religions and ideologies down as opposed to Christianity, biblical Christianity, it's all are a form of works. So all are going to try to bring this peace through their own effort, whereas biblical Christianity says, trust in Christ, he's going to do it sure. alone. So we know in Islam, they believe in the, the, the Mahdi, right? This messianic figure, he's going to bring peace. And we know the Marx believes through progressive politics, they're going to bring peace. That's why the anti-war movement, they hated the nuclear weapons. They hated all form of weapons. After World War II, a lot of Americans learned that weren't on the left. We have to fight evil. What the left learned is evil, or excuse me, fighting is evil. Because through the progressive dialectic, they're going to bring peace. So if you're fighting, you're against the progressive dialectic. And therefore, you're an impediment to that. So, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Lonnie. Um, yeah, I guess I kind of look at God knew who would, cho would choose him. But, I mean, he, choose, he chose us. But he knew the re reprobates. 
or what, whatever would never come to Christ because of they're they're just uh, just too stubborn. They're just uh, they're yeah. They just uh, yeah. Lonnie, you're, you're right. He does have that kind of knowledge. Oh, Bob. I was at a pastor's meeting one time. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> the speaker was John MacArthur. Yeah. And he said that God is just as glorified in all all that happens, both salvation and judgment. Yeah. And there's kind of a gasp. Yeah. And then during the questions, people said, well, what about that? How, how can that be? And he said, I said he was just as glorified. I didn't say he was just as pleased. Right. Okay. And in theology, we reject, or Eric and I do, equal ultimacy. Yeah. Okay. In other words, that reprobation is just as ultimate and pleasing yeah. and significant as salvation. Exactly. The greater work the, that is salvation. Yeah. And amen. actually, one time it's called a strange worker. Yeah. I think in Isaiah. Right. You're the Isaiah scholar. Yeah. And so we're not teaching um, hyper Calvinism or equal ultimacy. We believe that the, the universal call is a legitimate universal call. Amen. And that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But if people do not call upon the name of the Lord, they stay in the condition they were always in. Wow. Furthermore, during this lifetime, those who are not serving God are being allowed to do what pleases them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you tell someone, this is what it would be like to be a Christian, do you want to be one? Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be restricted. Right. Okay, so it's the grace of God that we're saved. But we're not teaching equal ultimacy. Exactly, that it's equally pleasing. Yeah, and one more okay, idea. Yeah, I guess I would, I would go along with that then. Yeah, one more idea, Lonnie, too, is you're talking about foreknowledge, that God looks down the corridor of time and he knows who is going to choose him. But let's remember, and I'll talk about this when we get to Romans 8, 29, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he called for those whom he called you know so those whom i'm sorry for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that foreknowledge we'll talk about the root of it it has to do with god having intimate knowledge so for example the hebrew yavah no adam knew his wife okay it doesn't mean he just had cognitive knowledge he was intimate with her in the same way god has intimate knowledge of his elect so it's not just that he looks down the corridor of time and sees who's going to choose him that's not the base of basis of his predestination the basis of his predestination is his sovereign choice to show unmerited favor upon some and not others. That is taught in Scripture, and that's the idea of foreknowledge. Not that he looks down the corridor of time and sees who's going to choose him and who's not. Well, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Romans 8, 29 through 30, but I just wanted to make sure that that was clarified. So we'll talk about it when we get to that sermon, and we can chat more. So. God bless you all, and we'll, um, we're going to be in First John. And does somebody have something? No, we're done. Okay, got it. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we could gather together in freedom. We thank you for those who had served in the armed forces to earn us that right. We thank you for them. We pray for blessings upon them this weekend and in their lives. And we thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to hear more of your word from First John. We pray for uh, Bob and his 
his voice and his health. We thank you for him. We pray that we'd have ears to hear what he's going to say so that we may learn more about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.